Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. My name is Chris Peters and it is episode 104 of the podcast and we are back from the World Junior Championship. Excited to be back and excited to get back to business here and uh, it's been very snowy uh, of late here. I've got a couple of snow days so if you hear some screaming outside of my studio window, it's just my children uh, playing in the snow. So uh, it's always fun to be back on a snow day, and uh, now that my back is fully out of whack, thanks to all the shoveling that I did, I'm ready to talk some hockey with you guys, and so excited to do that today. A lot to get to. Obviously, we're going to recover or, or recap the World Junior Championship, which I was at with uh, Liz Child, and you had, we had great coverage there on Flow Hockey. Hopefully, you checked it out. And then also, we're going to talk about the biggest news in hockey of the week, and that is Cutter Gauthier being traded from the Philadelphia Flyers to the Anaheim Ducks. We're going to get to that in our second segment today, but we're going to start with Team USA winning gold at the World Junior Championship. It was a dramatic tournament, but a very predictable ending, it felt like, because Team USA was the best team uh, in the tournament. 45 goals, four. For the U.S. in this one. So they scored the way that we thought that they were going to score. They controlled the puck the way we thought they would control the puck. And in the end, their talent level won out over some other teams. We never got a USA-Canada game in the pre-turn or in the, in the tournament. We did see them play pre-tournament. USA did win that game. Uh, but in the end, you know, this U.S. team, from both their pre-tournament games all the way through, they were the only team that won every single game that they played. And so the result was a gold medal. And a couple of takeaways from the tournament. I think the number one thing is that the forward depth was a dramatic difference for Team USA versus anybody else. They were able to roll four lines pretty regularly. Their top guys got most of the run. They got tremendous contributions from what eventually became their second line with Frank Nazar, Gavin Brindley, and Isaac Howard, who they probably had some of their best moments in the gold medal game. Um, you know, Gavin Brindley had six goals in the tournament. Frank Nazar, eight assists. 
And then uh, Ike Howard had seven goals, including two in the gold medal game. What a tremendous accomplishment that was for him and for Team USA, which we saw great things from throughout. They got very good goaltending. Trey Augustine was essentially the number one after you know the great question of, is it going to be Augustine? Is it going to be Fowler? USA never tipped their hand, but it always felt a little bit like Trey Augustine was going to be the guy and he was. He was excellent against Finland. He was excellent against Sweden in the last two games of the tournament. A big reason Team USA skated off with the gold medal. But I also think you got to give a lot of credit to the coaching staff. That was another big thing from this tournament. David Carl had a uh, had a good staff and an experienced staff. You had Brett Larson. You had uh, you had uh, Steve Miller, who's been behind the bench for multiple gold medals for this team once again. David Lassonde with the goalies, Garrett Raboyne uh, kind of came in as a, uh, an advanced guy and, and off the, he wasn't on the bench, but he contributed a lot to this staff from, from Augustana. And so we saw some great moments throughout that entire tournament where the coaching staff just made those tiny little adjustments here and there. They had some issues with the illness with the team where they had to change the lineups a little bit. And it seemed like all the buttons that they pushed were the right buttons. Another thing that showed up is that Team USA actually did have a, a decor that was able to stand up to the pressure of this tournament and up against bigger forwards. I think we saw moments where this highly offensive, undersized blue line got a little bit eaten up by the pace or by a, a hard forecheck, but for the most part, they handled it really well. You know, I think we saw Lane Hudson defend at a high level. He played more minutes than any other defenseman on Team USA's roster and then and was among the minutes leaders in the entire tournament. Ryan Chesley, who's more of that defensive stalwart guy, he played his role to a T. Big contributions from Zeev Boyum. Four shots on goal, three of them went in, including one in the gold medal game. It seemed like Zeev Boyum was able to come up with a big play whenever the team needed it. And then Seamus Casey, who was one of those players that missed a game due to illness, came back strong right after that illness. I thought he played some of his best hockey. I thought he was spectacular in both the semifinal and the gold medal game at both ends of the ice. And so you see that happening with this team and you see that development. You see players buy into whatever the coaches were trying to preach them in terms of how to defend zone entries, how to play down low, how to protect between the dots. They did that and didn't allow for a lot of high quality scoring chances. But if they did, they had the goaltending to back them up. So uh, all in all, I think Team USA proved throughout the tournament they were the best team in that that year. Now, going to the gold medal game, it was a wild scene. Um, you know, Team USA, Team Sweden, host country, partisan crowd, everybody in gold except for this teeny little sliver of the Scandinavian, which is where the USA parents sat. And that's they got their USA chance going as much as possible, but were often shouted down by the rest of the Scandinavian. I mean, we're talking about one of the great hockey environments I've ever experienced. I mean, the emotion that you could feel in the building, the tension that you could feel in the building, it was, the, the crowd was engaged in the game and that's what made it so fun. But then we saw Sweden, you know, they, they played tough. They had a great opening salvo in the tournament, you know, the, in, the, in the gold medal game, they were controlling the puck a little bit more. Team USA kind of had to absorb that, uh, that pressure. And they did that. And then in the end, you know, they get the first goal, which I think was critical. And that really kind of took a little bit of the life out of the building. You know, then Sweden ties it up. Energy is back on. Second period, Isaac Howard scores two goals. Life sucked out of the building. Jonathan Lekaramaki scores. At the end of the second period, boom, energy is back up. And the momentum seemed to be all in the favor of Sweden. And 
this is where I think Team USA deserves a ton of credit. It was 3-2 going into the third period, and Team USA played their best period of hockey in the entire tournament in that third period. It started early with a Zeeb Booyam goal uh, off of a one faceoff by Gabe Perot, not a natural center, but his dad, Yannick, one of the all-time great centers in terms of faceoff percentage in NHL history. Uh, and Gabe Perot wins that faceoff to Will Smith. He gets it to Zeeb Booyam, one-timer, boom. And that pretty much felt like the game was over at that point. Um, so big moments there from Team USA. Their stars came up with big performances throughout as well. And so that was just in a, a remarkable thing. And then you saw the shenanigans. There was a lot of you know extra little taunting and celebrating, and the crowd was not having it. Uh, there was one fan that tried to jump into the penalty box and get after Rucker McGrody, but security was there. They were pretty uh, solid on that front. But I don't know if you guys saw that on the broadcast, but I saw it from my perch in the press box. And yeah, maybe some of the stuff was a little bit over the top, but I think if you know the backstory, and it's not to say, you know, you want to have good sportsmanship and all that stuff, but it was kind of fun. I mean, Ryan Leonard blowing a kiss to the crowd. I mean, objectively funny, um, unless you're Swedish, I probably would say. Um and it was kind of one of those things, basically kissed him goodbye um, and uh, asked Rucker McGrady what he was thinking after that. He was like, yep, the game was over at that point. We knew it. We were we were ready to go. And um, and then, yeah, and then the fisticuffs came out. You saw the frustration boil over from Sweden and uh, Lane Hudson squaring off with Anton Johansson, who gave him a, you know, probably six inches taller than he is. Um, it was pretty a, a remarkable scene. Uh, but in the end, I think this U.S. team, the 2004 birth year, they had been through so much heartache as a team um, that they just let it all out and their excitement boiled over. And I think it came to a, to a head and the Sweden players took exception to it as they were completely within their rights to do. And things kind of bubbled up. But in the end, this U.S. team skates off of the gold medal. USA now has its sixth ever gold medal at the World Junior Championship. It was a fantastic event. Huge credit to the IIHF, to the Gothenburg organizers, that was a beautifully run tournament. I think that every, you know, we had really good facilities, really good atmospheres, great crowd participation, um, you know, great work by the volunteers there. The World Junior Championship is a gigantic undertaking, and I think they nailed it. It's a tremendous hockey city. I hope I have another opportunity to go back. If you ever are on uh, going to uh, uh, have, have anything on your bucket list, make sure to add Gothenburg to it, especially you know, to see either a Sweden game or a Forlunda game where it's sold out and it matters because that crowd was as engaged and involved as any hockey crowd I've ever been a part of. You should definitely go check out Flow Hockey's social media. We have a ton of different videos from the tournament um, that that have, you know, that even show what it was like in the Scandinavian uh, that day for the gold medal game with a, with a little walk through the concourse and hearing the chants of the crowds. I mean, really something that you can only experience in person to get the full volume and 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 just the 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 allure of it but boy what a fun time that was in that tournament i want to let you know obviously i haven't broken down a lot of individual player performances here you can go over to flowhockey.tv i've got both uh player by player evaluations for all of team usa's forwards all of Team USA's defensemen, and all of Team USA's goaltenders. You can get the full rundown on that, on my thoughts, on those players, how they played, what it means for their projection, all those different things. It's on flowhockey.tv. So head over there. We also have questions coming up where people ask individual questions, and I will answer those. But in the interest of time, and also because we have this uh, remarkable story about Cutter Gauthier that I'm going to get to in just a second, um, 
you know, that is uh, the priority. So we'll talk about that, but go over to flowhockey.tv, check out those evaluations. I mean, great stuff from uh, just in terms of what I saw. I'm not trying to say my own stuff is great. That sounds weird. But anyway, uh, you know, just a lot of in, info for what I saw and my opinion on the players. And if you guys care about that opinion, you can go find it there. Uh, before we move on from this World Junior topic, the other big piece of news that came out of the World Juniors is that Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul will host the 2026 World Junior Championship. They beat out places like Seattle. Uh, Seattle was a finalist, uh, according to our reporting and others' reporting. Um, and then also that uh, you know there were other warm weather climates that tried to get involved in this process as well. But ultimately, it goes to the state of hockey. And I think that between the XL Energy Center and 3M Arena at Mariucci at the, on the campus of the University of Minnesota, um, that is a hybrid rink. So we will have two different size rinks, but the Mariucci rink is not really that much bigger than an NHL size. So uh, if it was the Olympic sheet and an NHL sheet, that might've been a problem. It isn't anymore. And now Minnesota gets the World Junior. So 2026, the state of hockey will once again get a chance to prove just how much the state of hockey they are. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I would expect USA and Canada games to be quite full. I think that we could see a lot of Finland and Sweden games full as well as a lot of Finnish and Swedish uh, uh, heritage uh, in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we'll see if Norway gets their way back in there. That might help too. Uh, but I think it's going to be a great event. I really can't wait to be out there. Every event that I've been at at the XL Energy Center, Center is among the best events, that best run events. They do a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think that it's 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 not, uh, you know, they, they haven't had a, a World Junior since 1982 when most people had no idea what the tournament was. It was only a couple of years old at that point. So I'm really excited to see what Minnesota is able to do with this event and starting a new chapter and certainly having a U.S. team that just won a gold medal within the last few years gives it a little bit more juice. Uh, guys like James Hagens and um, and. Cole Iserman will still be age eligible to play in that tournament. The guys that were in this year's tournament won't be. Um, so, you know, that that's, but, but we could see guys like Hagens and Iserman and, and a bunch of other Minnesota based guys that could potentially play uh, for team USA in that tournament. So really excited for that. So congratulations to Minneapolis, St. Paul. We'll see you in 2026. Next year is in Ottawa and I plan to be there too. So uh, looking forward to all of that. All right, we're going to move on now, and we are going to talk about the biggest hockey news that there has been in, well, anywhere for the last couple of days. And obviously, we're a little bit behind the news, but I think that there's still a lot of meat on that bone in terms of what needs to be talked about with what happened with Cutter Goche getting traded from the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, Cutter Goche is coming off of a tremendous World Junior Championship. His value is exceptionally high. I think he's a top prospect. He's a number five pick. He's, you know, a center. He played center at the World Juniors. There's always been some debate about whether he's a wing, whether he's a center, all those different things. And we'll get into that as well. But Cutter Gauthier getting traded um, was a shocker. And now I was among the people that heard the rumblings that, hey, maybe he's not real thrilled with the potential of playing in Philly. That is something that I feel changed within the last year. I don't think, you know, a lot of people criticized him for telling the Flyers that he wanted to be a Flyer prior to the draft, that he was built to be a Flyer. And I don't think that he said that with any ill intent or that he was going to back out. But in the end, the Philadelphia Flyers 
repeatedly said he didn't want to be a flyer, so we don't want you. You know, we saw John Tortorella say he doesn't know him from a hole in the wall. He saw, you know, we saw Keith Jones said, if you don't want to be a flyer, you don't have to be. We saw Dan Hilferty, uh, who's, you know, the team president and 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 the, 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 the alternate governor of the team, basically saying that he's probably going to get a rough ride and he doesn't feel sorry for him. And Philadelphia people know how to treat, you know, people that turn their back on him, all that other stuff. It was a little much, to be completely honest. And, and here's the thing. I think that players that, you know, they don't have a lot of leverage. They don't have a lot of say. And I also think that, you know, the draft is set up in a way where the players don't really get much choice in where they go, what they do. They can certainly tell teams, hey, I'm not going to sign there. Um, the Philadelphia Flyers very famously um, – was the recipient of a player that absolutely refused to go where he was drafted. Um, and so, you know, Eric Lindros, I'm not comparing Cutter to Eric. I think very different circumstances. But something happened, and there's a new regime in Philly, and obviously they're 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 rebuilding, and, and there's all this other stuff that's happening there. Um, I've seen a lot of different theories as to why Cutter decided not to sign there. Some of them I don't think are correct. Um, you know, but we don't have that answer. And until Cutter Gauthier goes on the record about why he didn't want to sign in Philadelphia, we're all just speculating. That includes me, who just spent a couple of weeks interviewing Cutter, you know, being around people that, that know him and certainly around his friends um, with Team USA. And really, there wasn't an inkling of this because that wasn't the, the priority. There is one piece of news that came out of this that I, I, I felt like I needed to throw some sort of opinion behind because... One of the things that apparently really upset Philadelphia was that Cutter Gauthier and his family refused to meet with them at the World Junior Championship. Given the situation, knowing what we know and that there was tension, that there was stuff, that was not the time or the place for that meeting. The World Juniors, the players in the middle of a tournament, you're telling me that that's when you want to have the conversation? And maybe it would have only been with his advisor. Maybe it would have only been with his parents. I don't know. But Cutter Goche is in the middle of the most important tournament of his life with his age group that is dis desperate to finally get over the hump and win a tournament. They're rolling. Why would you want to have that distraction come in? It's it's completely ridiculous to me that if that had anything to do with the what happened and that they were fine, that was the final straw, that is completely outlandish. It's the World Junior Championship. It is not a throwaway regular season game. It is a very intense 12 days of hockey for these players. They only get a few days off in between. They're basically playing seven games in 11 days. And that is a, a time where you have to be focused. You have to be engaged. It doesn't sound like there was a ton of time for, you know, going out and exploring the city and having meetings with NHL teams with significant implications about your future in the middle of a tournament that mattered. So that was one element that I thought was completely ridiculous and something that I thought was so overblown because that was not the time or place for that meeting. Now, if you're the Flyers, you have a decision to make. And I completely agree with Keith Jones in that Cutter Gauthier's value was never going to be higher than it was right after the World Junior Championship. Forward of the tournament, tied for the scoring lead, 12 points, media all-star, USA's leading scorer on a gold medal team, alternate captain as well. And if it got out that he wasn't going to sign with Philly, which 
wasn't necessarily known, um, but that he wouldn't sign, then yes, all of a sudden Philly's leverage for a deal goes south. So let's talk about the deal itself now. Because in the end, Philadelphia got very good value for Cutter Goche. Do I think Cutter Goche is the best player in the deal? I do. I think that Anaheim took advantage of a situation, but they did have to give up a fair amount to make that move. Anaheim was also in a position of strength where they have a loaded future decor that includes guys like Pavel Mintukov, uh, Jackson Lacombe, um, you know, uh, Tristan Luno. They, they have guys that are going to kind of insulate the loss. So Jamie Drysdale goes to Philadelphia. A, a future second-round pick, 2025 second-round pick, goes to Philadelphia. So the Flyers are able to make the most out of a bad situation. What I think is a little bit concerning to me, and if I'm a future player, uh, is something that I'm thinking about as well, is how much Philly threw Gauthier under the bus and kept grinding it and grinding it and grinding it and going on. Every All of the media buried him. All of their, their TV analysts, like Scott Hartnell, is burying him. And, and believe me, I get it. The optics are terrible for, for, for Gauthier because he's saying, I don't want to sign with you. You drafted me fifth overall. You put a lot of faith in me to, to make that selection, but I'm not going to play for you. And again, I don't know what happened. I wish I could give you more context on what happened. But until Cutter Goche wants to break his silence on this, it's not going to happen. And so that's that's the thing that I just find so fascinating is that, you know, something happened and now Philly has gone full bore on wanting to explain why. And I think you have to explain to your fans why you're letting a top five pick go. A guy that was a centerpiece of your rebuild, a guy between him and Matt Vay-Mitchkov, you can de- you can debate who was the top prospect. Um, and a guy that probably was going to be part of your roster as soon as this spring and potentially part of a playoff run if you're able to, if you're able to maintain and get in. That now isn't going to happen. But Jamie Drysdale will be part of that. So I, I do think that Philly now is in a position where they made the most out of a bad situation. Let it go. Their fan base clearly won't do that. And I totally get that because nobody wants somebody saying, I don't want to play for your favorite team, especially when they haven't played in the league, especially when they don't have any cachet built up. I get that. But at the same time, one of the things that strikes me about this whole situation is that players have so little autonomy uh, before, when they are drafted, they, they, they don't have a lot of control. They be, the, the, the CBA is kind of stacked up against them. The draft situation, like they don't, for, for years and years, they've picked where they've gone, essentially. Cutter Goche decided to go to the National Team Development Program, decided to commit to Boston College, has had control of his own career until this point. And he's not the first player to say, I don't want to play there. Blake Wheeler was a top five pick who said, I'm not going to sign in Arizona. Arizona lets that that draft rights lapse. He They called his bluff. They let him stay in college for a long time. And because the college players can stay in a place, if they don't feel like, hey, I don't need the money right away. I don't need the signing bonus right away. I'll just play it out. Yes, there's risk in that. You could get hurt. There's plenty of other things that could happen. But that's the leverage that you have. So you use it when you feel like you have to. And we saw Blake Wheeler do it. You also think back. Adam Fox, he was never going to sign with the Calgary Flames. Calgary trades him to Carolina. He was never going to sign with Carolina. Carolina trades him. Um, The player, and because he had that ability to go back to Harvard, he had that leverage in that situation. So I don't have a problem with players using the little tiny bit of leverage that they have to get what they want. 
because in the end, the system itself, once you are drafted by a team, the expectation is as soon as you sign that contract, they've got you for seven years or until you're 27 years old, as as the CBA dictates. You're a restricted free agent. You have very little opportunity to move on from that team. And so I don't mind when players take the little tiny bit of leverage that they have and use it to their advantage because they don't have much. It really is the way it is. So I'll say this, the cutter Gauthier, like he's, you wear it. Essentially, you make the decision. You say, I'm not going to sign there. You wear the consequences that come with that. And that is going to be a very harsh ride from Philly fans for all of eternity. Um, he will have a target on his back as far as that's concerned. Um, you know, I, I believe he has family ties to near Philly as well. So that's uh, obviously uh, not always the best, <laughs> and then, you know, for, for them. But I, I, I do think that, you know, in this situation, whatever happened, Cutter Gauthier and the Philadelphia Flyers got something out of it. He got out. They got a good player in Jamie Drysdale. They got another draft pick. We'll see how much value that creates. So since we've talked a lot about Philly, let's also talk about Anaheim really, really quickly. And then we'll move into our question and answer. And guess what? A lot of the questions are about Cutter Goche. So we're going to get to those too. But the Anaheim Ducks have a, another blue chip player. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. It sounds like there could be some more movement um, in their future, but Think about it. Mason McTavish and Cutter Goche, hard driving centers with physicality, with strength, with power, with tremendous shooting ability. That's big. If Trevor Zegris is part of the long-term solution, he did just get injured, but if he's part of the long-term solution in Anaheim, high-end skill. Troy Terry, high-end skill, part of the long-term there and still uh, you know, a player with plenty to prove as, as a pro. Um, you know, I, I think that the Anaheim Ducks are building a wagon. Quite frankly, uh, the Anaheim Ducks are going to be a wagon and they are going to be one very soon. And that is probably scary for a lot of that division. But I think you look at Pat Verbeek and what he has done, Leo Carlson as well. You think about them down the middle for the for the long term and maybe Cutter Goche is a wing for them because you have Carlson and McTavish down the middle. You've got strength power, skill, the ability. And I really do think that this is a team that is going to be a significant player in the future. What they do with their goaltending going forward is Lucas Dostal going to be the long-term goalie of the future for them. Are there other options? What they do there will be a big key factor, but they have essentially the core tenets of a team that needs that, that will be moving forward that will be pushing out of a rebuild and into competitiveness in the near future. And I do think Cutter Gauthier will be a significant piece of that. And that is a scary thing for the rest of the Pacific Division, knowing the Anaheim Ducks, as they gain experience, as they gain more exposure, as these players get bigger, stronger, faster, better, it is going to be a very difficult team to play against in the very, very near future. So that's what we have to say about that. Angry Flyers fans, please direct your hate to my Twitter account. Um, and excited Ducks fans, just you know, enjoy yourselves with uh, with that. Um, but I do think that this is going to be a very interesting saga to watch. And uh, the other thing I will say before we move on, I don't think we are done seeing players exercise whatever little leverage they feel they have to make their their own situation better. These are their their careers. 
we get a lot more say in our careers as private citizens too than than the pro athletes do not to say that they nobody's going to feel sorry for them i'm not going to feel sorry for them but they when they have the opportunity to control a little of their own destiny i have no problem with them doing it because that's what i would want for myself all right Moving on, we're going to get to your questions. Again, a lot about Cutter Goche. It is the hot topic. We're going to continue to talk about it. We have a lot of other questions, too, that aren't about Cutter Goche, about the World Juniors, about college hockey, about the NHL draft. We are going to get to all of them right here today. And I even got a bunch that came in late, so we'll see if we have time for those as well. But these next few will at least appear uh, on your screen. And we're going to talk a little bit about Cutter Goche now. And this one comes from Felix. And Felix asks, do you see Cutter Goche as a player who can truly drive his own line? So Cutter Goche as a player that can truly drive his own line. So the big debate around Goche is whether he's a center or a wing. I think that he is continually starting to starting to prove more and more that he is and can be a center. I do think that. I think that he can be a center for for the long term. Um, I think it just kind of depends on what the Ducks have. I mean, I, I would rather have Mason McTavish or Leo Carlson potentially down the middle than a Cutter Goche, and I want Cutter Goche in my top six. So does that mean I move him to the wing? The one thing that we saw at the World Junior Championship was that he was driving a lot of his line's success. The problem was is that that line wasn't finishing necessarily all of their chances. Um, you know, I think that Goche has a, a, a kind of sometimes can get a little bit into forcing plays and not doesn't necessarily have the vision of a high-end play driving center like you know some of the other like even like a Will Smith who was on his team. I think the vision and the playmaking ability dictate more of the center. But what we did see from Cutter Goche was the ability to defend, the ability to play in his own zone, the ability to play with strength and speed and be disruptive in all zones. And that I think is very important. He was one of the best face-off men in the tournament. I believe he finished third in face-off percentage at the World Junior Championship. Several of his face-offs immediately led to goals. Um, he's very good in that regard. He is hard to get in front of. He is a hard guy to slow down. And then he also has a tremendous shot. He only scored two goals in this tournament, but he did lead Team USA in shots on goal. Uh, so he had 10 assists and two goals, the biggest one coming against Finland in the semifinal, which won Team USA that game. Um, so I've always viewed Cutter Goche as more of a finisher than a driver. And I think if you're going to be a center, you want a driver, right? You you want, and if you can be both, that's even better. But that's harder and harder to come by. So, um, do I think he can truly drive his own line? I think that he is still progressing and developing, and it's possible. I do think that he's a better finisher than he is a driver. All right, next one comes to us from Hayes Chirps, and Hayes is this a reference to? It could be a reference to Kevin Hayes Chirps. Um, his, uh, this is a question. Gautier's NHL comparable and ceiling, in your opinion, is? You know, that's a that's a good question. I think that there's there's certainly um, some Shifley-esque ability there. You think about the size, the power, the scoring ability that he has. I feel like that's something that he could be. I do think that the ceiling for him, you know, is a top six center. Um, you know, in the best case scenario, I think that there's also a scenario where he's a top line wing. Um, I think in either sense, you're getting a player that you're you're saying, hey, this guy could score us 30 goals a season. Um, I do think that that's fully within his capability, whether it's at the center position or on the wing. Obviously, the value for centers is much higher, but I do think, you know, defensively, there's still going to be need work, work to be done. 
but I see that power elements. And, you know, the aside from, like, I think Austin Matthews has elite hockey sense, but in terms of size, shooting ability, power, the different things that Cutter Gauthier has shown, like, there's 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 elements of that. I just don't think the hockey sense is, is remotely close, which is where I think the disconnect is. Um, you know, why wouldn't, you know, a, a, a Austin Matthews comparable is very lofty to begin with. Um, even a Mark Shifley comp, comp is pretty lofty, I feel like, in this in the modern NHL. Uh, but I do think that that's something potentially that could be um, in Cutter's kind of wheelhouse uh, going forward. Our next question comes from Talkin' Hockey. And I always like hypothetical trades. So just out of curiosity, what do you think it would have taken for the Blackhawks to nab Gauthier from Philly? What would it take for the Blackhawks? So if you look at the deal that did ultimately get Anaheim Cutter Gauthier, I think that the, the answer would be Kevin Korchinski and a second. Um, and, you know, Korchinski is younger than Drysdale, is younger uh, you know, that he has a little bit of a ceiling. He's a bigger player, um, obviously doesn't have the injury history that that Jamie Drysdale does, which is an important factor in the deal. Um, but I think that if you're the, if that's the move that you're making, you're looking for a puck moving defenseman, you're looking for a guy that you can, you can kind of have on your, on your line. Um, I think that Korchinski is probably what, what it would have taken for Chicago to do it. I don't think that there was a lot of other players um, that, that they really coveted um, in this one. But, you know, I think the difference between Korchinski and Drysdale, aside from the size, is also the handedness. I mean, Korchinski's a left shot defenseman. You're looking at Drysdale as a right shot defenseman. Maybe that plays into it a little bit. Um, but I, I do think that if we're talking hypothetical trades, it would have probably had to be Kevin Korchinski in that second pick. I just don't think that there were any other players that really fit what Philly was looking for um, you know, maybe you could say, uh, would it have been a, a forward? You know, I, I just don't know, but, I, but I think that for Cutter Gauthier, they, they really, if they weren't going to get a, a top of the line, top of the lineup center, they wanted a top of the lineup defenseman. I think Kevin Korchinski is trending towards number one. And I'm not sure that USA would, or sorry, that, that the Chicago Blackhawks would have been keen to a deal of that magnitude. Um, even as good as Cutter Gauthier is, I'm not sure that that necessarily would have done it because I think they think so highly of Kevin Korchinski. So a lot of things to kind of break down there, but a great question nonetheless, and I appreciate you asking it. This next one comes from Jamie's Zebras, and this gets into a little bit more of an evaluation of Cutter Goche. So from Jamie's Zebras, what are some of Cutter's strengths that may go unnoticed by the public eye? What are his weaknesses and which ones are easily correctable and which ones are going to take some time to correct? Good question. I think among the strengths that Gauthier has that isn't necessarily outwardly noticeable is with the size and speed that he has, he's able to really be disruptive and he's able to get in the way and, and he doesn't have to decleat a player. He doesn't have to knock a guy off his feet to knock him off the puck. So there's a lot of subtle body positioning things that he does that takes the puck off of players. He's hard to get the puck off of because he can lower his shoulder. Um, he's physically strong. I mean, very physically developed player. I mean, he is really built and, and strong already has that kind of NHL frame um, that as he continues to get even stronger, will make him even tougher to play against. If there's a weakness, I think he forces a lot of plays. I think that we saw he shoots in the shin pads a lot. You don't like to see that, especially when he's curling to the top of the key. 
you don't want to see that where where he's he's you know giving shots away as much as as he is. I think he can get a little bit of tunnel vision to the net at times and needs to find his teammates a little bit better. Um, but you know, here's a guy that had ten assists in the World Junior Championship. You know, so it's not like he's devoid of that. I think that you know the 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 pass. One of the great pat plays that he made the entire tournament was the pass that Rucker McGordy completed his hat trick against Slovakia on. And, and it was just one of those Kuznetsov style going back behind the net, then around the back and just right on the tape to, to, to McGrody. He makes those plays more now than he used to. Uh, but I do still think that, you know, there, there are some things, and I think the forcing of the plays, is it a hockey sense or a vision thing? That's That's been the debate. I think that there has been a real debate about the hockey sense quotient with, with Gauthier relative to other top centers in the game. Um, and I think that that's a valid concern because he does, you know, and that's not something that's necessarily as easy to correct. Um, but the thing is, is with his experience, with his strength, all of those things, I think he will ultimately become a more impactful center um, as he improves. But certainly, you know, a player that doesn't have a ton of like physical maturity is there. Uh, athleticism is there, speed is there, shot is there. You know, when he does, he, he can distribute well enough. It just comes down to the last little bit, which is a, arguably the most important thing: is is the hockey sense truly elite or high end um, to make to be the most impactful player to take advantage of all the physical tools that he has? All right, I think we're almost we're basically done with Gauthier. There is a question about Jamie Drysdale, so it's kind of related, but we'll get to that in just a minute because the next one comes from at Hawks hockey and at Hawks hockey says, Hey, Chris, I was fairly impressed with how Sam Renzel played. What are some of the things that impressed you the most with Sam, as well as the things he needs to improve? Also just for fun. What do you think Sam can become at the NHL level? All right. So Sam Renzel, Chicago Blackhawks first rounder currently at the university of Minnesota was essentially team USA's sixth defenseman at this tournament. Um, played, you know, a regular shift throughout the tournament, but it was a depth defenseman, no penalty kill, no power play, or not a lot of penalty kill, not a lot of power play, uh, no power play at all. Um, and that's, you know, that was kind of to be expected. That was his role. I do think that there's the potential that that's what his role could be in the NHL. If we're, you know, jumping ahead to your second question, I think that he's, it, it is less likely to me that he's going to be a top four defenseman. It's not out of the question. What I will say about Sam Renzel that impressed me the most isn't necessarily any one skill or any one thing. It's that if you would have put him in this tournament a year ago, he would have been completely lost into the pace. He would have been lost in the pace. He would not have been able to defend at a level high enough. He would not have been able to keep, you know, to process the game at a, at a, at a quick enough pace to keep up with this. There were instances this year where that was still true, where you said, okay, he's a little bit behind it. He's, you know, there, he's not making the best reads. He's turning pucks over a little too much. But I think what, what we saw is that he continually built trust with the coaching staff. He had one very egregious turnover that led to a goal in the semifinal, but the coaches didn't go away from him. They put him back out there. They let him keep going. They let him, you know, and it was something that he learned from and he didn't make those mistakes. The things that Renzel does very well, he's, he's, he's a graceful skater for the side. A six-foot-six player that skates as well as he does is a pretty rare commodity. Um, I love the way that he can get up the ice quickly. Uh, the thing is, is that once he gets there, he needs to make a play. Um, and that's where I think that there can be a little bit of a disconnect is that, you know, he, he'd get the puck into a good position, but he wouldn't have anywhere to go with it after that. 
Um, and that's kind of a, one of the issues that, that comes up. Defensively, there's still some work that needs to be done in terms of the reads and, and reactions that he's making to, especially on zone entries. I thought that that was a problem for him at times. Defending speed at, pro, at times was, was a problem. Um, but the thing is, is that when the Chicago Blackhawks drafted Sam Renzel, they knew this was a long-term thing. This was not a guy that was going to be on their roster soon. He is not going to be on their roster soon. I think he's at least two more years of college, at least. And that does put him in the range where he could become a free agent. That's dangerous, obviously. So I'm sure that you, that the Chicago would make a push to sign him after uh, his sophomore year. As opposed, I don't think they should try to sign him this year. I don't think that would benefit him at all. Um, I don't think he's ready for the AHL. I don't think he's ready for pro hockey yet. But I do think he is continually improving. Each year he has gotten better and has progressed at a rate that gives you a little bit of comfort. Now, when you draft a first round draft, but you, you're hoping that you're getting a top four defenseman, right? I think it's probably lofty to suggest that that's where he's going to be, but it's not out of the question because I think that we're seeing a progression in him that is legitimate. Um, I think the hockey sense still needs to come a ways. I still think that there's got to be better decisions with the puck. But I do think that this is a player that has gotten better and better and better as time has gone on. And then he also has those physical tools. He also needs to be more physical because at his size, that's going to be the expectation is that he's more physical. He's, he's not losing puck battles. And that's going to be really the ultimately where I think we can uh, find more improvement for Sam Renzel. But great question. Um, I think that, you know, the the jury is still out in terms of his his overall NHL potential, but I do think that there, that it, it remains there, that there is something there. All right. Our next question comes from Avco cup, a frequent questioner who asks, how do you currently project Jamie Drysdale? Is he still likely a top pair D man at some point? It's a good question. And it's a tough one to answer because I think the biggest thing with Jamie Drysdale is something he really can't control and that's health. Um, that is the concern of this trade. That is the inherent risk in this trade for the Flyers. And that is something that you have to be eyes wide open. And he's a five foot 11 right shot defenseman who skates incredibly well and moves pucks remarkably well. However, he has only played one full season in the NHL, an 81 game season uh, in 2021, 20, 22. He played eight games last year, uh, has played 10 games so far this year. And you do worry a, a player his age that has missed that much service time, will they be able to get to where they need to get to, to be a top, you know, top level defenseman and certainly a top pairing defenseman. I think he's still conservatively a fourth, uh, you know, a, a top four defenseman in the NHL, which is still a very good thing to have. I mean, top four to right shot defensemen are very difficult to come by, especially when they have the puck moving capabilities of a Jamie Drysdale. So a lot, I got a lot of time for Jamie Drysdale in that regard. The things that we don't know and can't know is how much of these injuries impacted his overall trajectory and his overall development. Um, are, is there a way that he can avoid future injury? Is there a way that he can stay away from these, 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 these potential catastrophic injuries that cause him to miss significant amounts of the season? And that's something that he really can't control. And we can't, you know, we can't know. Um, but I think ultimately you look at his skill set, you look at the way that he plays, you look at the number of minutes that he played in, in Anaheim. I still believe that top pairing defenseman is a possibility for him. Um, it's way too early to say it is, and he's only 21, um, you know, turns 22 this spring. 
I think there's still ceiling for him to reach. And I, and I'm sure it was a very shocking moment for him to get traded away from Anaheim where it seemed like he was going to be a cornerstone fixture, uh, fixture, but in the end, that's, uh, that's hockey. So he moves on. All right. Now we're going to talk about some more world juniors players and prospects that we saw just this last week. And this one, next one comes to us from Kenneth and Kenneth asks, how are you feeling about Edward Shala after the WJC? He seemed to have a good tournament despite his down season in the OHL. You know, Edward Shala, it is, it, it has been a bit of a, a down year. I mean, not just a bit. It has been a down year for him in the OHL. He has not performed to the expectations after playing in the professional ranks last year. You know, we thought that there might be, you know, he's, he still has 20 points. Just got traded to Kitchener, by the way. Uh, now a Kitchener Ranger after being with the Barry Colts. So 20, 20 points in 25 games for a 18-year-old that has professional experience and is a first-round draft pick. Not exactly super inspiring. He did get his points at the World Juniors, seven total points at the World Juniors. That included a hat trick against Norway. Um, and he did have assists in um, uh, in some of the other, uh, other games as well uh, for Czechia. So interestingly enough, like I... I didn't think he had a great world juniors to be uh, perfectly honest. I thought he was okay. Um, he disappeared in a lot of those games and checks this check team won a lot. They, but I never felt like Edward Shaw, aside from that Norway game where they were dominant, that he really impacted the game in a significant way. He got good minutes, but you know, they, they at one point took him off the top power play unit. Um, you know, it, it didn't really pair him as much with Yuri Coolidge. So like, I think that it changes very little about how I feel about the player because I just think that he's in an adjustment year right now. He's trying to get his game. Seven points of the World Juniors is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, he had four assists on top of the hat trick against uh, against Norway. You know, so he he contributed and he had an assist in the bronze medal game where Czechia, that was the craziest flipping thing I've ever seen. Czechia scoring four times in a minute to take a bronze medal right off the necks of Finland. Um, but Shala to me is a player that needs to raise his intensity level shift by shift needs to show a better on ice work ethic and a more consistent on ice work ethic. He is absolutely skilled. He has vision. He can make plays. I just didn't see that enough in this tournament. So I did not think he had a great world juniors, despite what the points say. Um, and so that doesn't really change how I feel about the player, but, um, but to go just to go off of that too, Kenneth with, you know, I, I think, I think his projection still is very positive. I think that he is just developing and this is an adjustment year. I'll, I'll like to reassess him next year. I'd like to see what he looks like. I'm, you know, assuming that he's going to be, you know, uh, potentially either back in the OHL or perhaps in the AHL. And then he should go back to the world junior championship next year. Um, so I got a lot of time for Shala. I just didn't think that we've seen, we, it's been about a couple of years now of me just wanting more from him. Um, after what I thought was just seeing him at 16, thinking that, Hey, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I, I just want to see him deliver on that potential. All right. We move on to our next question. And this one comes from Habs on Reddit and Habs on Reddit says, Hey, Chris, hope you're doing well. So two questions, 
Did you see a different side of Lane Hudson in this World Junior Championship as in a player who seemed to be relied more defensively than offensively? And secondly, is Jacob Fowler the likely favorite to be the number one goalie for the U.S. team next year? And I already told Habs on Reddit in a tweet that, no, unfortunately, uh, Jacob Fowler aged out. Uh, so he is in late 04. He will not be part of the World Junior Championship next year. Uh, but I would not be entirely shocked to see him maybe make the men's world championship team uh, after maybe next season in college. That would not be uh, shocking to me to see that at all. In terms of Lane Hudson, and we talk about him a lot on this podcast because he's a very interesting player and we have a lot of Canadians fans that listen and they can't get enough of him. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was very interesting throughout this tournament is that I think there was a level of expectation that Lane Hudson was simply going to dominate the world juniors in terms of his points. And because that's what he's done at the college level for the last two seasons. What was very interesting was that team USA basically said, all right, you are our top pairing. We need you guys to defend. We need you to be responsible with the puck. We need you to make plays still, but we want you to be better defensively. And so I think that Lane Hudson made that adjustment incredibly well. Um, his start to the tournament was not great. I didn't love the way that he was playing early on. I thought he had a lot of pucks thrown away, a lot of bad turnovers and different things like that. However, the last part of the tournament for Lane Hudson, and you can read this. I have a detailed assessment of him on uh, flowhockey.tv. The commitment to defending, the commitment to getting pucks off of opposing forwards, to stopping plays before they could start, to moving pucks up ice quickly and getting them out of the defensive zone quickly, I thought he did a remarkable job at that. And that is the area of his game where we continue to see improvement, where I feel like he has been underappreciated for how well he's able to kind of get in the way, get a stick on a puck, get, you know, get in a lane, um, make a play. I, I just think that he has shown that tournament that he can do any of those things and still have tremendous impact. He had six assists in the tournament, um, played nearly half the first and second periods, both over nine minutes in each of those periods in the gold medal game, team USA said, if we need a stop Lane Hudson and Ryan Chesley are going out there and we trust both of them equally. He killed penalties. He was on the power play. And then he was also just tremendous at five on five. He still made plays, didn't get as many shots off, didn't make as many, uh, didn't score any goals, but he made a lot of plays. And I think Lane Hudson showed in this tournament that he can do a lot and that he is still an outlier among defensemen in his size package because he does a lot on the ice, even away from the puck, and he is dramatically special with it on his stick. So was this tournament to his regular standard that we've seen at Boston University? I would say no, but that just goes to show you how high the standard is that he set at BU this year. All right, talking about some more Team USA defense, and this next question comes to us from Aaron. And Aaron asks, hey, Chris, I get the pleasure of watching Zeev Booyam at Magnus Arena on weekends in Denver and have been so impressed with him this season. What are your thoughts on his game following the WJC, and where does he project to be drafted? So we actually got a couple of, um, of questions about Zeev Booyam and where he might be projected to be drafted. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll answer this one here because I think that when we talk about rising stock for this draft class, there are a few players that have put their stock on the rise more than Zeev Booyam. Now he's listed at six foot two at Denver. He's, he's not, I just want to make that clear. I, I'm not a very tall man myself. Uh, 
but you know, I definitely think that Zeev, uh, you know, is closer in that five eleven six foot range uh, and probably closer to that five eleven range. Throughout the season, he had twenty five points through eighteen games so far at Denver, a pace that is miraculous. It's even better than Lane Hudson's last year in a draft plus one year. Um, and so Booyam was really good in, in the, at the start of the season. How he was going to be at the World Juniors was going to be a real test because he was essentially Team USA's on Team USA's third pairing. Uh, he did get power play time when Seamus Casey was out, but Casey was their number two defenseman on the power play, uh, on the second power play unit. So Booyam didn't get those opportunities, but he did have five points in the tournament. Um, and what we saw from Z Booyam is dynamic skill, uh, make you miss ability with the puck on his stick, Mostly good reads, a very good shot, and the ability to to extend plays at the offensive blue line. A lot of risk. A lot of he had a lot of turnovers early in the tournament, but when he played his best, he was a very impactful defenseman, averaging close, you know, to to eighteen minutes some nights. And he did have a game where he played twenty two minutes against uh, against Czechia and was outstanding in that game. He also was the plus minus leader, which, you know, obviously is a, a bit of a flawed statistic, but he was the number one guy in plus minus, um, and was on the ice for so few goals against because, you know, he, he and Sam Renzel actually, I thought worked well as a pair. Um, Renzel had to play a little more conservatively and Bouillon played a little bit more risky. Um, and it worked and, and, and then he scores the big goal against uh, against Sweden in the gold medal game that really basically took any chance of a comeback. It just felt like they were they were on their heels the rest of that third period. So um, as far as where he's going to go in the draft, that's a really interesting question because players like him that are you know slightly undersized defensemen, he's a left shot, you know, more offensive minded. I think that it's reasonable to expect that he goes in that ten to fifteen range. Not you know, I think it's a ten would be probably the ceiling because let's also recall that this year's draft has so many big defensemen um, that are also skilled and can also produce. And so they have a little bit more of a projectable ability in the NHL. Whereas Booyam has that risk factor due to the size and that's, and, and some of the risk that he plays with. But I'll tell you what, this is a guy that is on the rise. I think that would not be shocked to see if him, him be a top 15 pick in this NHL draft still probably, you know, that 10 to 20 range, to give you a, a wider range, that's where I think he could be right now. Uh, but Z Booyam, outstanding tournament and really raising his stock. All right, we definitely have a few Blackhawks listeners here because the next couple questions are about Blackhawks prospects. And the next one here comes from Maxwell. And Maxwell asks, it felt as though the pace of play at this tournament was a little too much for Martin Mishiak. Should Chicago fans be worried long term? All right, so Martin Mishiak was a second-round draft pick of the Blackhawks last year, one of the many second-round picks that they had, um, 55th overall. So am I worried about him in a draft plus one tournament? Um, no, I'm not. I, I don't think so, not, not for a second-round draft prospect. If he was a top-five pick, then it would be a different story, but he's not. Uh, he did have three assists in the tournament. Slovakia bowed out earlier than any of us expected them to, so certainly disappointing there. Um, and Mishiak didn't impact the game as much as I think he probably should have. The thing I like about Mark Mishiak, he's got good frame, he's got strength, and he can be a disruptive player. He's good on the forecheck, you know, when he's when he's playing his game. I just don't think he, we ever saw him establish himself in a role that allowed him to be what he has been throughout the season. The only games where he really pointed up, he had one one assist in the first game and two assists 
against Norway otherwise was skunked. He was a minus three in the game against the U.S. where they got rolled over 10 to two. So not a very strong overall performance. Um, you know, he did join last year. Last year, he was a late tournament addition to Slovakia. So he was part of their team, um, you know, that that had some some success last year. Uh, but you just I think you look at what he's doing in the OHL this year and it's it's, you know, on par, uh, a little bit ahead of what he was doing in the USHL last year. Um, he's a guy that you're probably going to get in your AHL system sooner than later, um, you know, as, as, as a guy that'll be uh, that's 19 uh, and it'll be 20 next September. So, you know, I think that that's fine. I don't I don't think there's really any real concern about a player, especially when it's, you know, a 55th overall pick. If it was a first rounder and he played the way that he did, I would feel a little bit more concerned. But I still think that there's a lot left to be learned about Martin Mishiak and his ultimate NHL ceiling. But I would agree with your assessment that he was a bit behind the pace um, in this tournament and, and, you know, just didn't impact games. All right. Another Blackhawks prospect question. No problem with that. This one comes from Zach and Zach says, Thoughts on Nazar's NHL projection translation after this tourney? Well, really, Zach, good question. And it doesn't really, my my opinion of him and my projection of him does not, is wasn't going to change off of this tournament. What I think we saw here was a continuation of what Frank Nazar is ultimately going to be as an NHL player. I think it's unlikely that he's a top six center. I think it's more likely he could be a middle six, possibly third line energy player, um, which, you know, you say, oh, well, he was drafted 13th overall. He should be a little bit more than that. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think there's a lot, you know, he, he's not a big guy, but he's sturdy. He's good defensively. He's smart. He makes plays. Uh, he's got a good shot. There's a lot. I, I, I love the player. I think he's a tremendous player. And I think this world junior championship showed how he can be as an NHL player because he was using a lot of defensively responsible situations. He was good at the faceoff dot. He ended up with eight assists, which was second on Team USA to Cutter Gauthier. Um, he played so well off of his line mates. He set them up. He made, you know, he cleared some room for them. Um, and this is a player that I think you consider where he was this time last year on the shelf injured. I think he's back on track. I think there's a lot of a room for him to continue to get better. Um, you know, I, I still feel like there's like Braden point esque elements of his game, um, that, that, that we can still see, uh, coming forward. And, you know, I don't think he's going to be at that level. I don't think that's the ceiling for him, but I just feel like that's the, the model of player that he can kind of continue to, to, to build off of, but, you know, an eight assist tournament, uh, plus nine, I mean, just really a guy that, that was so impactful, um, also, his his underlying numbers, I, you know, the guy Mitch Brown and Lassie Allen do such a great job of tracking games and uh, tracking things like zone entries and zone exits and all these different things. They they have a great data set. So go find them on, on Twitter. That's Mitch Brown and, and Lassie Allen. And um, they tracked every game and Nazar, you know, blew it out of the water in terms of his 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 underlying numbers in this tournament. And, you know, I think that the, the eye test meets the statistics in that one. Uh, he just was such an impactful player. So my, my, my projection doesn't change a ton. You know, I've, I've always thought kind of middle six uh, center is the ceiling. It's unlike, like, you know, very few five, nine centers in the NHL, especially in those roles. So maybe Nazar is ultimately a wing, but at, at the same time, I think that there's a lot to like about Frank and, and the way that he played in this tournament. All right, we're moving on to a question from Posty. Posty asks, hi, Chris, this is a NHL draft question. 
Hi, Chris. Has Cole Eiserman kind of become kind of underrated in the public circles compared to the league circles? So that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think I think that the public circles have actually caught up to the scout circles. I think that Cole Eiserman's stock has been very much in flux this year. I think that there is a very, you know, in most of the public lists, he's still top three, top five pick. Um, I would think if you were to pull NHL scouts right now, the top five designation would be tenuous at this point. 29 goals in 28 games. No one denies the goal scoring. 50 points in 28 games. No one denies the production. I think there is a couple of things that go against Cole Eiserman. Not that he's, again, tremendous player, going to be a, a high, high NHL draft pick. The difference is, is that I think that there is a growing number of teams that are looking at the, the defensemen that are available in this draft, the Artem Levshinov, the Anton Silaya, the Sam Dickinson, um, you know, different different players. I could keep mentioning Zeev Bouyam for that matter, you know, but you look at the the the, the higher end, bigger defensemen that wouldn't include Zeev Bouyam, but the other guys that I mentioned, teams are looking at that and saying that is what we need. And, I, and so I think it's less about the way that Cole Eiserman is playing and more about how, how valuable big defensemen are to NHL teams right now. Um, they look at the Stanley Cup. They say, it's still you still need to be heavy. You still need to be big. You still need to have size. And that, I think, is one of the key things that that is, is pushing Cole Eiserman's stock down. Um, not making the World Juniors doesn't impact his draft stock. Being there and playing well would have helped, but Levshinov wasn't there, Silyaev wasn't there, Demidov wasn't there. Players that could potentially unseat him were not there to push past him. Um, obviously, Macklin Celebrini was there, but I think the gap between those two was already well-known um, and well-defined. Um, but I do think that, that Cole Iserman um, will still be a high draft pick, but I think that it is looking less and less likely he's going to be a top three pick in this draft. Um, but if he goes on another tear with a bunch of goals, who knows? Maybe it changes. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Our next question comes from Jeremy, another NHL draft question. Actually, Jeremy has three questions. That's a lot of questions, Jeremy. That's all right. I like it. I like it. I'll answer all of them. Um, Jeremy asks, while he recovers and the rest of the top defense seem to be at a high level, is Kibi Haru, Aaron Kibi Haru, being left behind from the top D, D tier in this class? Yes. Um, Aaron Kibi Haru came into this this year uh, as a highly projected offensive defenseman out of Finland. However, um, I think a lot of it was tied to the fact that hey, you know, he played some games as a as a 15 year old. Um, he was a uh, double underager at the under 18 World Championship. Um, then, you know, had six assists there. I mean, really impressive. He is an impressive player with good good skill, and I still think he's a first-round draft pick. But the likelihood of him being a top 15, even a top 20 pick, seems less and less likely now. Um, part of that is because of the injury. He has a broken kneecap, which is going to keep him out until about, I think, February. Um, and then April, we'll see if he is a available to play in the Under-18 World Championship, which would be his third um, and if he plays there, if he's healthy enough, you know, that, that'll be helpful, but yes, I mean, injury is always difficult. 
It's not like teams don't have a book on him. They've been able to watch him, but to not see the progression year over year does impact how you feel. And the other thing is he's a five foot 10 defenseman, good skater, good puck moving capabilities, but really, you know, the, the injury situation has pushed him down the list. No question about that. Um, you know, so we just mentioned, and Jeremy also asked, has Bouillon played his way into the top 10 conversation? Um, uh, we just talked about that. I don't think he's top 10, but I do think that he is, you know, 10 to 20. And then uh, is there any clarity on Demidov's contract situation compared to Mitchkov last year? And, uh, you know, <laughs> the interesting thing, like, you know, with Demidov, he's been out injured as well. You know, he's 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 now uh, he's now back in business, but uh, and playing well. Um, but, you know, he was he was on the shelf for a bit. Um, his. His contract situation is 24-25 as far as we know. Um, you know, so he doesn't, he's actually doesn't have as long of a, you know, it's it's a similar situation to Mitchkov, but he's younger, so you don't really worry about that. I don't think the the Russian contract situation is scaring teams uh by any means at all. Uh it's just a matter of, you know, making sure that he's healthy and continuing to progress. And uh by all by all accounts at the U20 level, he's been doing just what he was doing right when he left off. So very good chance that he remains in that top five conversation and, and teams are going to be interested in him going forward. All right. Our next question comes from Nam Danan. And this one is, I've got two. I don't think there was enough Stian Solberg talk coming out of the World Juniors. Can you spend some time talking about Solberg? And secondly, what did you think of Jesse Pulkinen? And could we see another second year eligible go in the first round again? All right. Well, let's hit that with the first one. Stian Solberg. Um, is was playing for Team Norway at the World Junior Championship. Against Team USA, he was one of the biggest standout players of that game for either team. He is six foot two, roughly, almost 200 pounds, left shot defenseman, and he is mean. Physical player, really tough defensively, had two points in the tournament. Um, and you know, I thought. After that USA game, I was like, I got to go watch more video of this guy. I haven't done it yet because I just got back from the World Juniors. But what I will say is that there is absolutely buzz around him. And there was buzz after that. I think the last four games that he played in, the buzz dried up a little bit because I think that he made some really bad reads. And there, you know, there's definitely now some questions about his hockey sense defensively. Um, not a ton of offensive potential. He does have 10 points in Norway's Pro League this year. He's playing big minutes there too, which is really you know, that is, is intriguing. Um, it's tough to evaluate a player playing in the Norwegian pro league. There aren't a lot of guys that, that we, we look at. And so similar to, you know, there were, there were comparisons to like cider and stuff like that. It was like, no, not really. I mean, like he doesn't have the offensive capabilities of cider. He does have that physical edge. He does have that nastiness. Um, I do think he's a top 50 pick in this draft. Uh, I don't, I, I think it's a lofty to put him in the first round conversation. I think it's much more reasonable to put him in the second round conversation as a guy where you say, there's a lot there. There's stuff that we can pull out of him. Just a little concerned about some of the hockey sense things that we saw at the world juniors. But I mean, some of the, some of the defensive plays that he made against USA were, were really intriguing. And so that is a guy that I absolutely will continue to watch video on and who knows, we'll, Maybe as I watch more of his Norwegian pro games, some other things come to the fore. Um, but it's just it's tough because we've we've seen it multiple years where how do we how do we evaluate these players in leagues where we're not usually seeing top level draft prospects? Where it was cider at the DEL, just not a lot of guys played 
in Germany in their draft season. Um, you know, the Swiss NLA with, with uh, David Reinbacher last year, not a place where you often see top tier defensemen playing regular minutes. And so, you know, those guys, those players are outliers and you do have to be especially careful when you evaluate them, but really, really interesting nonetheless. And Stein Solberg is a guy that I'll continue to uh, track and monitor, but I think he was a guy that all of a sudden NHL teams are like, okay, we got to do extra work and maybe we got to make a couple trips to Norway to go see him. The other guy that got some draft buzz out of the world juniors and I, and, and that you mentioned is, is Jesse Pulkinen and he's a six foot six defenseman, um, physical 200 plus pounds, you know, decent enough mobility had three points for Finland. I think that there are definitely for me, um, I think it would be much, a, a little bit much to put him in the first round conversation. I, he's another guy where, you know, I just think that we're, there's a lot that remains to be seen in terms of his overall projection. I think there are a few hockey sense things there. There are a few, you know, the lack of offensive potential that I, I, I just don't see a ton of, um, great potential there offensively for him. Um, that's another thing that kind of puts it on the, you know, kind of on the back burner. He can move pucks. He, he defended well. He was noticeable in pretty much every game he played. Um, so I think that's another guy where it's just continuing to do more video evaluating. Uh, teams are much more keen to draft re-entry players now. Um, and he's a December 2004 birth date. So, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more there. You look at his draft numbers of last year. He played 43 games in the U-20 level. So U-20 level in Finland and only four assists. Um, and then this year exploded for 28 points in 18 games at the U-20 level. So this is one of those guys where is he a late bloomer? Is it is, What's happening? I'm really excited to find out more about uh, Jesse Pulkinen as I continue to dive into video. But I think that he showed that now we have to have him as a, in the conversation. First round, still a little rich for me, but at the same time, not out of the question. Uh, six foot six defenseman, you're going to get a lot of the benefit of the doubt. All right. Our next question comes from Hawks 35 and they ask, which teams outside of the top 20 in the pairwise rankings can you see making a run getting into the NCAA tournament? Thanks for the great WJC coverage as always. And Hawks 35 I thank you for that kind designation. Well, we don't look at the pairwise until about January. And really, even then, it's probably too early. But looking at the current pairwise, um, and you can find those on USCHO, College Hockey News, you know, looking at the pairwise, which we use. Um, you know, outside of the top 20, it's really hard for me to see many of these teams kind of getting back in it. I think Merrimack is an interesting one at 27th. They, they've, I feel like they've underachieved a little bit this year. Um, you know, I think that the Notre Dame that you mentioned, they, they had a, a weekend that they could have potentially gained some ground right in the first weekend of the of the new year. And they got swept by Wisconsin, so that doesn't really help them a whole lot. Uh, Cornell is the team that's in the 20 right now. That's that's a team that I think could potentially make some noise. They're very difficult defensively. They've got some signature wins, you know, beating BU earlier this season. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the college hockey season is going to be fascinating to watch going forward. Here, you know, you've got Arizona State right on the uh, right on the cusp of of the pairwise. Can they continue to to, to stay in the conversation as an independent? Um, you know, it's always difficult with, with the, the, the schedule that they play to, to, to have enough of that, uh, those road wins and different things that can help you in your pairwise. So, uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see exactly uh, where things shake out. But I think Notre Dame is one of those candidates that could make a run. Uh, but I think it's getting harder and harder to see 
which teams are going to make up that ground uh, as we look at it. All right, we got one more question among the people that asked uh, online, and then we're we're going to quickly. I have a couple more that came in late that I'll I'll get to uh, that we won't have pop up on the screen. Um, but this last one comes from Bill Armstrong's burner. Uh, again, uh, you know, saw Bill Armstrong at the World Juniors. I'm not sure that this is actually his burner, and I say this every time that we get one from Bill Armstrong's burner. But this one is, uh, it's been a bit, Chris. Thoughts on Logan Cooley so far in the NHL is Silyaev, the final Russian infinity zone for Bill Armstrong in this year's draft. <laughs> oh, I love that. Is he? He could be. Um, you know, Silyaev is is certainly one of those players that has gained so much attention in this draft season. And, um, you know, his, his, his production has come back to earth a little bit in terms of the points that he was putting up earlier in the season. Uh, where we're talking, you know, it wasn't going to take much for him to break the the points record. Um, but, you know, the, the important thing is that he's still playing a mostly regular shift uh, defensively. He's, you know, the numbers are okay. He's going to be an interesting one to watch um, in terms of, of where he ultimately goes in the draft. But a six foot seven defenseman with tremendous mobility and the ability to move pucks. I mean, he is a bit of a unicorn, which makes it kind of enticing, um, you know, if I'm Arizona, though, I think I've reached my quota on Russian risk. Um, so that's, you know, with Simashev and, and uh, uh, you know, that that that's that's where I'm, uh, you know, let me give me a little bit of time to uh, to kind of figure that one out. Uh, I think that that will be uh, tough to say. But in, as far as Logan Cooley is concerned, you know, I think that his his rookie season has been fine. Like, you know, it hasn't been it hasn't blown the doors off of anyone. I think you know, he's moved down the lineup a fair amount. Uh, 19 points in 39 games so far. Enough, nothing to really to sneeze at. I think that the the fact that he's, you know, getting, continuing to get a regular shift, continuing to find ways to produce, um, the fact that he's really good on zone entries and different things like that are all really good signs. Um, this is a building year for him. Uh, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to win the Calder uh, and that's fine. You know, he, but he is potentially going to be, you know, I, I look at him and I say, well, if he's building this foundation now, he's he's in for a potentially huge sophomore season. And I do think that, you know, this is going to be a very building block style year for Logan Cooley. So we'll see where that goes from here. All right. I'm going to rip through very quickly a couple of the questions that came in after I got done. Um, and uh, this next one comes from, uh, let's see. Oh. Uh, Mia, Mia asks, I have no question, but please feel free to talk about Noah Oslin for half of the episode. All right. Well, we've already crossed that threshold. We're not going to do that, but Noah Oslin, uh, I thought he had a tremendous world junior championship. He's a Buffalo Sabres prospect. Um, he was in the running for my all-star ballot. He did not make my all-star team in the end. He was right on the outside looking in. Um, but, uh, incredibly intelligent player, high motor, good effort level, good skill, um, I think he's a, a really solid piece for the Sabres going forward. And he's a guy that I think that really, really drove things for Sweden in this tournament and was one of their most consistent players. Um, so that, that one is, is definitely uh, in the mix to, to be, uh, to be talked about a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, so I thought that that'll be, that'll be a great one uh, to, to think about. Um, no Oslin, I think, you know, once he gets to Buffalo, possibly this year, um, you know, get him into the AHL, give him some time with Seth Appert and the Rochester Americans. I think he's going to be ready to make an impact within the next couple of years on the, on the Sabres roster. Got one from my good pal, Jake Baskin. And he says, does USAH bring back David Carl for round two next year? 
I think it's almost certain. Uh, I think that the feeling might be mutual. I, I did ask David Carl immediately after the gold medal game uh, if he would be coming back for round two. And he said, uh, you know, he, he definitely did not rule that out. He didn't say that he would or he wouldn't. He said those conversations will happen later and he was just going to enjoy that win. But I think that uh, based on the job that he did and based on the interest, I think there's very little doubt. The only question I have is will an NHL team have already hired him by that point? Uh, because I do think that he is very much on the NHL radar, but I do think we'll see him come back. All right, the last one that we'll get to, and I'll try to get to others next week if I missed you this week, comes from Cliff D, and he asks, does Gabe Perot's game translate to the NHL? Because if so, a lot of teams might be kicking themselves for passing up on the kid. So Gabe Perot had a very strong uh, World Junior Championship, and um, you know I think that uh, – oh, actually, I have one more after this. Sorry, I, I – I, I had one more. <laughs> so after this one, but Gabe, it's also Gabe Perot slash BC line related. Um, you know, the thing about Gabe Perot is like, he, he doesn't have incredible foot speed. He doesn't have incredible size, but he has one of the most elite hockey brains that that, that are out there. The spots the, that he can find, the way that he pops into space, the way that he makes passes and, and reads plays. He scores in so many different ways. He's got very pure touch on the puck. Like he makes a lot of these little passes that you're like, how do you even do that? Um, I think he'll need to get stronger. I think he will need to get uh, quicker. And and those are the two things that are really going to be ultimately what built, what pushes him forward in the NHL. Um, I think that he, he, he can translate to the NHL. There's still work to be done. I think that his elite hockey mind is going to make him a very intriguing player, uh, but we still need more time for him to, to physically develop. And then the last, last question that I'll get to today is, Chris, what are your thoughts on the BC line going pro or going back to college? Maybe the Sharks convinced Will Smith to go pro next year. I feel like what one does, the other two might follow. I think all three players in the BC line should go back to school. And I also think that this World Junior Championship was a great indication why. But Chris, Gabe Pro had 10 points in the tournament. Will Smith had eight and nine or nine. And, and, and Ryan Leonard scored big goals. Why would they go back to school? There were a lot of instances in this tournament where their youth showed. Um, Will Smith needs to get stronger. Gabe Perot needs to get stronger. Ryan Leonard can become a more dominant player, I feel, at the collegiate level. When I look at Cutter Goche at this tournament, who is one of their teammates at BC right now, the second year of school, how much better he is at he was at this year's World Juniors compared to last World Juniors is dramatic. That extra year for elite players who enter the NHL at 19 as opposed to or 19 or 20 as opposed to 18 is significant. They arrive more prepared, they arrive ready to make an impact. If I'm the San Jose Sharks and I'm looking at my roster for next season and unless I win the lottery and get Macklin Celebrini, I have zero interest in bringing Will Smith to my team next year. I don't think that they're ready to be competitive and I don't think that, that they want to have their youngest and most important players even if they get Celebrini, maybe don't bring either of them in next year. Give them another year of development and growth and don't bring them into an environment where losing has kind of been the norm for a little bit here. Uh, as far as Leonard goes, I think Leonard has the most pro-ready frame, but he got pushed around a little bit more in this tournament than I've ever seen before. Um, and it wasn't that he was getting pushed around. He was creating a lot of havoc. He was making plays. He was really upsetting the opposition. He was very agitating to the opposition. But he took a beating out there. He was getting knocked off the puck a little bit more than I'm used to seeing him do. But he has a great shot. He has really good skill. He's very tough. 
I think he's got a lot of potential. So, but I still think all three should go back. And I saw this year, their minutes, you look at their minutes for this season at the World Juniors. There's a reason they played the third most of the of the top four lines. And it was because that their defensive game needed to improve and because the other two lines were a little more reliable in terms of driving and, and executing. However, this line did play their best game in the, in the gold medal game. And I like, really liked them in the semifinal as well. But I still think very strongly those guys should go back to school for one more year. All right. It's been a long podcast. If you made it this far, congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the phrase, if you did make it this far, is the boys are back in town. Uh, that is the phrase. You hit me with that. I hit you with a celebratory gift. We all are friends for life and we all are happy. But that's going to do it for this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. A huge thanks to all of you for listening and a huge thanks to everybody that followed our coverage at Flow Hockey. Record numbers for our World Junior coverage this year. That is thanks to you. Hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't seen it, you can go to the 2024 IIHF World Junior Championship Collection on Flow Hockey. See all of our content there. Follow us across social platforms at Flow Hockey, at Flow Hockey TV on TikTok, where we had our first ever 1.3 million view TikTok. Thank you, Rucker McGordy. And there is a lot more left to enjoy. So make sure if you haven't yet subscribed for the remainder of the season, we've got great games coming to you right here on the uh, on Flow Hockey. So make sure you are staying tuned. You're subscribed. We got ECHL playoffs and CCHA tournament, Atlantic Hockey Tournament. It's all coming in the spring. It's all coming. So make sure that you are signed up. That is going to do it for today. Huge thanks to Tyler. Huge thanks to you and everybody that asked questions. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. We'll catch you next time.